Please take your worship folders or the Bible in the seat pocket in front of you and turn to page 817. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 12. We'll be reading from verses 14 to 37. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. The grass withers and the flower fades.
Let's pray together. We don't command you, Holy Spirit. We don't teach you. You teach us. You command us. You give us life. You give us eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus. You convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You are the one who applies all the benefits of the work of Christ. So to blaspheme you is suicide. And I believe in your power. Help my unbelief as I stand here now and as we've gathered together here now. We ask you to glorify the Lord Jesus, to take what belongs to him and to disclose it to us. So for those who are my brothers and sisters, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you who testify within our hearts that we are children of God, that you would strengthen those already the children of God. And for those of our guests and friends who are not yet joined to Christ, would you be the spirit of recreation for them this morning and bring them uh, to saving faith and repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we've reached a portion of Matthew's gospel that, uh, that uh, deals with an issue of, uh, of great gravity and therefore great sensitivity, uh, the, the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, the unpardonable sin. And uh, most uh, Christians or folks in the church have wondered what it is. Uh, certainly uh, many have uh, worried that they may have committed it. And uh, virtually all of us have heard the rule of thumb that if you fear that you've committed it, you should probably not worry that you have committed it. How many of you have heard that rule of thumb before or a variation therein too, right? That the people who are concerned about it don't need to be concerned about it, but the people who aren't concerned about it should be concerned about it. That's basically what I heard in, in seminary. Uh, and while there is a great deal of truth in that rule of thumb, it is dangerously incomplete, I think, and ultimately unhelpful uh, because what it does is it lifts the whole understanding of what this very serious uh, uh, warning from Jesus is out of its context. And that's why I wanted Rich to read the passage at length. Um, I told Maria uh, on Friday that the, that the message felt especially weighty to me this week, that the keys of the kingdom felt especially heavy this week. I I do not want to put words in Jesus' mouth that aren't there, and I don't want to take words out that are there. And for you, I want clarity. Uh, I want to be clear for you because your lives matter. Your consciences matter. I mean, did you not feel it as Rich was reading the text that, that this is a very serious uh, text? I mean... Think about what Jesus has put on, ta on the table here. 
Um, you, you know, you can tell you matter, by the way. Let me just step outside of this for a minute. You can tell you matter to somebody when they have serious conversations with you, right? If the only thing they ever do is engage in small talk with you, if that's all they ever do, then you can rightly conclude that you don't really matter very much to that person. Either if they don't share their own heart with you or if they don't talk about serious things with you. So what I want you to see immediately from this passage is that Jesus, you matter to him because he is talking to us about ultimate things here. He's talking to us about the future. There's going to be a day of judgment. Did you notice this in verse 36? All people, all people, are going to give an account for every careless word they speak. And then in verse 37, he changes that to you. You see that? You'll be justified on the basis of your words, and you'll be condemned on the basis of your words. And that, those yous are in the, they're singular. So he takes the general principle, and then he says, you, individuals, need to pay attention to this. And so I want, I want to be clear for you because I know that, I know that your lives matter to, to Jesus eternally. And I know that the hearts in this room, like every other church, are on a spectrum. There are some people who are here who are knowingly non-Christians. There are other hearts here that are unknowingly non-Christians. There are people who are knowingly Christians, and then there are people who are believers but who are so battered and bruised and whose consciences have been so ruined in many ways, harmed by all kinds of things, that they doubt that they're Christians. And so this warning that Jesus is talking about is going to speak to all four groups. And do you know what's interesting to me? What's interesting to me is that the ultimate and most important implication of this entire passage is the same for all four of those groups. And it's this, that the ultimate protection, the only safeguard against blaspheming the Spirit is to bless the Spirit, right? I mean, Jesus wants to call all of us away from that sin, but not into a vacuum. What he wants is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, right? We worship, we worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That is the prescription for all, all the hearts on that spectrum, right? Whether you're a Christian, you and I need to hear that again. A non-Christian, you and I, all of us, we need to be called by the power and the gravity of Jesus into that outcome. And so what I want to do this morning with you is move in that direction by digging into our passage to see the context of this warning. So I want to understand the context with you, see it in context, and then I want to draw four clarifying conclusions about what blaspheming the Spirit is and isn't and what difference our understanding of it should make. So let's look first at understanding the context. And in order to do that, we've got to think about the context much more widely than, uh, well, we'll begin where, where Rich started, but we're going we're gonna to look more widely at the, at the context in Matthew's gospel of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So let's first think, and we're going to work backwards to chapter 1 here in three steps, okay? 
Um, and I'm just telling you right now, it makes me uncomfortable to work backwards. I'm just saying that. That's my, that's my junk right there, okay? okay? But I think the best way to do it is this way, to start where we looked at last week. Now, we ended last week looking at verses 18 through 21 of our passage. And remember I said that this was Matthew quoting Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, uh, one of the servant songs from the book of Isaiah, and he's quoting it to, to, to demonstrate that Jesus, Jesus and Jesus' ministry is the fulfillment of this first servant song. And you'll notice, again, that this is the Father telling the world about Jesus' ministry. Ultimately, the ministry of the servant is Jesus' ministry. And the Father is announcing and describing, talking about the servant in the third person, saying, look at my servant, look at Jesus, let me tell you about him, I love him, I chose him, I've made him the servant to the world. And notice this in verse 18. I've given him not only a mission to the world, but the empowerment for that mission. And that mission is that I, the Father, am going to put my spirit on him. So what we see, this prophecy, 700 years, over 700 years before the birth of Christ, is that the Father is announcing that the power of Jesus' ministry is going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to have that in place in your mind as we get ready to think about how different the Pharisees' testimony about Jesus is. Okay, so uncomfortably now, working backwards another step, we get to Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. And you can turn with me there if you want. Matthew 3. And you remember when Jesus is baptized... He comes up out of the water. Chapter 3, verse 16. This is on page 808 in your pew Bible. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, that is the fulfillment of what uh, God the Father had prophesied in uh, Isaiah 42. It's the fulfillment of verse 18 in chapter 12. You see, Jesus' baptism is like his public coming out. It's the beginning of his public ministry. And what Matthew is making sure we understand is that at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus' Uh, Jesus' public ministry is marked by the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit upon him, confirming again that what the Father said in Isaiah 42 is true. The power in Jesus' ministry, the power from Jesus' ministry, the power of his ministry is the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Again, think about how different the testimony of the Pharisees is. And now let's go all the way back to chapter 1. This is utterly critical to see that by the the reason I'm doing this is because unless we see how emphatic Matthew has been on this theme and and how uh, integral, how 
inseparable and bounded Jesus' ministry is to the Holy Spirit's ministry, unless we have that context, we will, not, we, we, we will feel like Jesus is overreacting in, Genesis, in uh, chapter 12. So now look all the way back in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And of course, this is after Joseph discovers that Mary, his betrothed, is pregnant, and he knows that he's not the father. And so he is considering, should he divorce Mary? And an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream one night and, and says this in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why not? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that which is conceived in her? Jesus Christ. She will bear a son. So, so now what we know from just verse 20 is that everything from the smallest root to the highest fruit of Jesus' ministry is all going to come from the Holy Spirit, from top to bottom. Right? There is no instant of Jesus' incarnate ministry that is not the result of the Holy Spirit's ministry in him. Again, think of how different that is from the Pharisees' testimony. And look at verse 21. What's his ministry going to be about? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's, here's God's interpretation of Jesus' ministry. For he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus' ministry, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' conception, what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit begets holiness in Jesus. Right? He's a holy child and also begets holiness through Jesus into the lives of his people because Jesus is going to set people uh, free from their sins. So that's the story of Jesus' ministry, integral with the Holy Spirit. So by the time we get to Matthew 12, this is well established, and it is utterly critical to see it. The Father's testimony, the Spirit's testimony are both that Jesus' ministry is a holy ministry. And so we get into this context, and what happens is that th this begins with the healing. If you come back to Matthew 12, and in verse 22, this very sparse report from Matthew that Jesus, uh, essentially we see a concrete instance of Jesus moving toward somebody who we would characterize as a, as a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, right? A man who is deaf. Uh, or excuse me, um, yes, a man who is blind and mute. I always get that mixed up. Blind and mute, and Jesus, who's demon-oppressed, right? This is not an ordinary blindness and ordinary muteness. It is, there, there is a, there's an unmistakable demonic origin to this man's uh, travails, and Jesus restores him and heals him, essentially exorcises him. Okay? He's exercising the ministry that he's described to have in Isaiah 42 that Matthew quotes in verses 18 through 21, and he sets this man free. And what this provokes now is questions about Jesus' true identity. 
And we basically have three theories that get put on the table. The first is the people's in verse 23. The second is the Pharisees in verse 24. And the third uh, explanation of Jesus' identity is the true one, and that's the one that Jesus gives himself, and that's verses uh, 25 through 29. So first think about the people. Well, the people see this, and they're amazed and they say, can this be the son of David? Now, you, now, the way that comes across in English is not the way it's actually written. The way it's written is this. That couldn't be the son of David, could it? Or that isn't the son of David, is it? So if you say it that way, it's a lot more ambiguous than it may come across here. But they, they see this healing. They see this exorcism. And they say, hmm, could this be the Messiah? Now, they're a lot better than the Pharisees, at least at this point. But don't be too quick to pay them a compliment. Because amazement is not the same thing as commitment, and neither is curiosity. And do you know, even within this passage, you know, it's so interesting to me, all the, I have multiple commentaries on the book of Matthew and every, from good people. And every single one of the commentators uh, let the people here off the hook and they, and, they, and they push all the weight of Jesus' warning on the Pharisees. And I think that's a mistake. And let me tell you why. Because of verse 30. Jesus says in verse 30, in a way that I think sounds a warning even to the crowds, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, it doesn't matter in the end how we view ourselves and our stance toward Jesus, right? I, mean, I know this is a brain transplant. I needed this too when I was a non-Christian. But I mean, it's such an elementary point, but it is so critical. Listen, it doesn't matter what I think my analysis or what my, what my stance toward Jesus is. What matters is what Jesus thinks my stance toward Jesus is. Right? I might think, well, I'm not against him. I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland. Well, I'm not scattering. But Jesus says, listen, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering. And so the people, I just want to say, don't, don't, the people's curiosity is not safe in itself. If it stays there, it's not safe. If it stays there for you, you're not safe. Friend, that is a very important point to make because there are all kinds of reasons that people would be drawn to the vicinity of Jesus without commitment. He is fascinating. Listen, I had English classes at the University of California at Berkeley taught by people who hated Jesus. And one of the assigned texts was the Bible. Because Jesus is interesting. Don't ever confuse neutrality toward Jesus for safety. Okay? If curiosity doesn't mature into commitment, 
you are squarely within the warning of verse 30. So friend, today is your opportunity to be with him. Today is your opportunity to start gathering with him. But the Pharisees, if there's any ambiguity with the people, there's none with the Pharisees. See, what's interesting about the Pharisees is they can't deny the fact of Jesus' power. You notice how they don't say, well, that miracle did not happen. Uh, he He wasn't blind, he wasn't mute to begin with. No. Do you see? The Pharisees start and they acknowledge, they concede that there has been power that has come out of Jesus' ministry. What they're arguing, well, what they're, what they're denying is the source, that the source of that power is God. And in fact, that what they're saying is that the, the, pow- the source of that power is actually satanic. And I think Matthew gives us an indication that this has nothing to do with the facts because he says, when the Pharisees heard it, did you see that? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, listen, he casts out demons by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. Now that is very serious. Because in context, what we can see already is that means that the Pharisees are calling. Matthew has, has, uh, has shown us very clearly from the immediate context and wider context that the, the net effect of what the Pharisees are doing is they are calling God a liar. And they're religious. Because they're saying, listen, what you see here is exactly the opposite of what it looks like. This is uh, no skepticism. This is no uh, doubt. This is no mistaken kind of uh, conclusion drawn from facts. This is a hardened, this is really important to see this when we think about exactly what the blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. This is hardened. This is predetermined. This is premeditated. This is without reference to the facts. The facts don't matter here, okay? Their opposition to Jesus is totally personal. And it doesn't matter what the evidence is. Now, Jesus comes back in verses 25 through 29 in what I think is some of the most, you know, as a Christian who cares about the life of the mind... I care about the life of the mind. This is one of the things for me that just reinforces over and over and over again the truth of the gospel, the reliability of the Bible, and ultimately the loveliness of Jesus Christ. And it is that that contrary to what I thought when I was a non-Christian, contrary to the caricatures of Jesus that circulate in our culture, he is brilliant. And truth matters. Logic matters. Friends, some of you let television determine how smart you are. Some of you, and, and, and there was an irony to that statement, okay? Some of you expect far too little, and I'm talking to young people here too, you expect, you expect far too little of your mind. God didn't give it to you to waste it, 
God didn't give it to you so you can tolerate inconsistent, incoherent logic in your head. You need to work. Ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. You, you exercise. You go run. You eat the right stuff, maybe. Okay, I'm talking about you people, not me. Okay? You do all this stuff to take care of your body, and you let your mind just kind of putrefy by not seeing that one of the aspects of redemption is that God sets your mind free. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I want you to see here as Jesus demolishes the Pharisees' incoherent position, brick by ridiculous brick. And I want you as a Christian to feel energized by that. I want you to feel engaged with your mind and setting your thoughts apart for Christ. And you don't have to be argumentative in order to be clear, but just feel the energy of this. Jesus says, now wait a second, Pharisees. You're kidding me, right? Any kindergarten knows that a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. You can't You know, the Civil War was not a strategy for the building up of the United States. You can't be for something and against it at the same time. That's true at the level of a kingdom. It's true at the level of a city. It's true at the level of a house. You see, Jesus is saying, this is just general, common sense, general revelation. Anybody knows this. And Pharisees, what you're saying is that when you accuse me of exorcising demons by the power of the prince of demons, what you're saying, in effect, is that Satan is destroying his own kingdom. Now, does that make sense to you? Of course it doesn't. Then verse 26, what does he say? If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is not a kingdom expansion strategy, if what you're saying is right. Then verse 27, and, and then he makes it personal, right, to himself. He says, okay, and, and, then, and then connects with them. If I cast out demons, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, the, the meaning of that is that is that Jesus wasn't the only one doing exorcisms, and apparently some within the Pharisaic community had performed exorcisms, and Jesus is saying, listen, not only is it internally inconsistent and incoherent what you're saying, Satan would never do that, but, but, but my Pharisee friends here, you brood of vipers, <laughs> how then do you explain the exorcisms that members of your own community have carried out? You don't claim that those are the result of Satan's power. So let me just tell you, and he kind of leaves it there. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying their exorcisms, which you approve, stand as witnesses against you in your disapproval of mine. Now, what is Jesus doing here? What he's doing is he's not saying, he knows, he knows that reason reason alone can't save somebody. But he's walking them back through their, he's taking their hand, and he's walking them back through their argument to show them that regardless of the facade, at its root, their interpretation of him is not driven by logic, but by hatred. Because there is no logical basis. Right? It's about love. A love 
for what is contrary to him. It's exactly what John says in John 3, 19. He says, and the judgment is this. You guys know this. And the judgment is this, that the light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. And what Jesus does is he, he then, having, having demolished their uh, position, he now uh, gives the true interpretation. And the true interpretation, right, verses 28 and 29, is that the, the kingdom of God has come upon them. He's saying, listen, uh, the, the power of the exorcism that I performed is the Spirit of God, and that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that, he knows, is not necessarily a welcome thing to them. And that's what he says in verse 28. In verse 29, he then gives an illustration that I think is, is just a wonderful illustration. It's a, it, let's, let's read verse 29, and then um, I want to think about that a little bit more with you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, the strong man there is Satan. And Jesus, so, so imagine this. There's a house, and somebody wants to... There's, there's a place that Satan... Uh, that the strong man, let's just say, let's keep it in the illustration, that the strong man regards as his home, as his territory, and in, in the strong man's house is stuff that the strong man claims is his own, Right? And uh, Jesus is saying a picture, listen, how can anyone ever plunder the stuff that's in that strong man's house unless he first goes into the house, and he's a strong man, he's not a wimp, do you notice that? He's got power, this strong man who's in this house. And Jesus is saying, the first thing you have to do is you have to, if you want to get the stuff out of the strong man's house, is you have to go into the strong man's house, and you have to overpower him. You have to bind him. And then, once you've tied him up, then you can plunder his house. And Jesus is saying, Pharisees, here's what's going on. The reason I am able to exercise demons is because I have greater power than Satan. My power is not derivative from him. My power is contrary to his. I, am in, I have invaded territory that he is claiming is his own, and I am here to destroy his kingdom. I'm not building or advancing his kingdom, as you claim. The reason I can exercise, the reason I can rescue people out of demon oppression is because I am the stronger man. Now, you know, every week there's a certain place in the text that God surprises me from. It happens almost every week. And, you know, I'm always looking for the cross. I'm always looking. Because I love Jesus, I am always wanting, when I am doing my exegesis, I am on tiptoes, my heart is on tiptoes, eager to see ways in which Jesus is laying the groundwork for the cross. Because I know that every strand in this gospel, every strand of every fiber of Jesus' teaching is preparing us to understand uh, the climax of his ministry at Calvary. And I think about this example here that he's given in verse 29, and it has moved me very deeply. Because on its face, if you look at verse 29, you think, okay, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's the kind of power encounter, right, that makes sense in light of the world. I mean, 
you, you know, the, the, you know, terrorists take over that, that uh, gasoline facility in the Algerian desert, and what's the response, okay? What's the response? Uh, how do you get the hostages out? Well, the Algerian army has to come with greater force, right? And, and you know, if they pulled it off right, no one would have been killed, right? That's the way the world does things. But you know, we know when we read this illustration that Jesus' ministry is going to climax in a way that looks differently from this, right? There's a power encounter at the climax of Jesus' ministry that looks very different from this. But it is the ultimate binding of Satan. It is the ultimate defeat of Satan. It is the ultimate plundering of Satan. And that's at Calvary. I want you to think about verse 29 in light of what we know Jesus is heading toward as a climax at Calvary. What is the greatest power encounter that Jesus ever engaged in in the power of the Spirit? It is in the offering of himself, as the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 9, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God. Jesus' death, his presentation of himself at Calvary was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, do you know how Satan was defeated at Calvary? Satan was bound at the cross and his storehouse of souls and consciences and people plundered by the living God as Jesus himself was bound. As he gave himself to be bound to the cross. To be bound under the Father's justice by our guilt. Willingly given giving himself to be bound on the cross as our substitute, willingly giving himself to... to, And the irony, of course, right, is that, that the ultimate power looks like the ultimate weakness. Where the strongest of all men puts himself in the place of the weakest of men. And through that apparent weakness binds and defeats Satan and utterly plunders him by being plundered. Plundered of his glory. Plundered of his honor. Willingly plundered of his reputation. Plundered of his blessings. Plundered of his innocence. And ultimately plundered of his friends and of his father's affection. You see, the universe is not what it appears to be, friends. And Jesus is not a simple two-dimensional character. Friends, the power source in the universe is very different from what the world tells us it is. It is weakness that is the greatest strength. Think about the love of God that would allow himself to be bound and plundered so that you and I, who've tried to keep God in a box or keep him at the periphery of our lives, could be set free. You see, it's because of that good news that when the Pharisees are hardened in their response, 
when they refuse consistently and over and over again, when they refuse to acknowledge Jesus' goodness, that Jesus gives this climactic warning in verses 31 all the way through verse 37, saying, listen, you can speak a word against the Son of Man, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who is the power of my ministry, you are cutting yourself off with, with hardened determination from all hope. And you know, Pharisees, that this has nothing to do with the facts. This has all to do with your hatred of me. So now, let's draw some uh, clarifying conclusions. First is, and we're already hinting, hinted at this, that th this sin, uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we need to know what it means and what it doesn't mean. Okay, so I want to try to give you some pastoral guidance here in 10 minutes, okay? First is, we need to see that this is the ultimate perversion, right? This is, at its most basic level, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, is to attribute the work of God's Spirit and the work of Jesus to God's ultimate enemy, Satan, okay? So, so we need to be very sensitive to the context here because what the Pharisees demonstrate is that their attribution of Jesus's work to the power of Satan is not on the basis of being poorly informed. It's on the basis of being fully informed. In fact, the more evidence there is of Jesus's, of, of Jesus's true identity, the stronger their opposition against him and the worse the things are that they call him become. Okay, now it's not supposed to work that way. Can you see that? This is, this, is, this is not simply kind of garden variety skepticism or unbelief or mistaken unbelief. This is with eyes open and heart closed to anything except hatred against Christ. This is opposing Christ vehemently. No one stumbles into this sin. I want you to hear that very carefully. No one stumbles into the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Spirit. You need to hear that, friend, because some of you have such ten some of you who are my brothers and sisters have such tender consciences. You need to know that you don't stumble into this sin. Now, if that feels too vague to you, and you insist on a bright line test, let me say that that's probably not a good sign. Okay? That would be essentially like saying, hey, Mike, teach me how to drive. I want to learn how to drive, but here's how I want you to teach me how to drive. I want you to tell me how close I can get to the edge of the cliff without going over the cliff. That's not wisdom, that's recklessness, friends. Okay? So the way you learn to drive is by saying, hey, listen, the road's here. This is the road. This is the road. Look at that line. Don't look at that line. Don't look at the cliff. Look at the line in the center of the road. Stay on the road. And there is clarity there, right? There's no ambiguity there. I don't know how close you can get to the cliff. Friends, the way sin works, the way sin hardens a heart, the way reckless 
flirting with sin hardens a heart. Listen, don't think you're going to know, friend, when you pass the point of no return. There is, and I need to say this with all sobriety, in the law of how sin operates in a human heart, it has a hardening effect. It is possible for a conscience to be seared beyond the point of recovery. So what do you do with that? You don't become fatalistic. You don't become pacifistic. What you do is you move with all of your energy. If you can even understand what I say, you just move with all your energy as far away as you possibly can from anything that would look like blaspheming the Spirit or being neutral about Christ. And what you do is you bless the Spirit. You move in worship toward Him. You believe the gospel again. Now, for a Christian, let me just, because I know I've been a pastor long enough, been a Christian long enough to know that there are three things in the Christian experience, very common in the Christian experience, that people often are worried amount to blasphemy against the Spirit. And I want to I wanna disabuse you of this. And I'm speaking now to Christians. Okay, the remedy, the, the safeguard against blaspheming the Spirit is to bless the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, okay? Think about the positive, right? Have that in mind. Cling to the cross. And why should you worship Him? Because He is the strongest man who is willing to be bound as the weakest man for you and to be plundered for you so that you could be enriched with everything that was His. That's why you should do that. That's why your heart should be drawn out in love to Him, right? How could you possibly have an interest in being near the edge of the cliff that he already willingly went over for you? Right? So now in Christian experience, there are three things that aren't blaspheming the Spirit that I just want to make sure you understand. Friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, spiritual dryness, I don't care how long you experience it, spiritual dryness is not blaspheming the Spirit. Oh, hallelujah! If it were, David and the psalmist would be in hell. Amen? Read the Psalter. Psalm 42.5. Why are you... This is in the canon of Scripture. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. That's not blasphemy of the Spirit. That text was inspired by the Spirit. So it's not spiritual dryness, nor is it dark thoughts. Oh, my goodness. Every thought in your mind is not from your mind. Every one of your thoughts is not your thought, friend. Just because somebody is standing in my living room isn't, doesn't prove that they belong there. Doesn't prove that I let them in doesn't prove that they are a resident of my home. Just because they're standing in my living room, they could be a trespasser or they could be a resident. What's going to determine whether, those, whether, whether a dark thought is mine or someone else put it there, namely Satan, right, is how I respond to it. In the same way that if somebody is in my living room 
and they are unwelcome, I kick them out. I fight against them. Now, they may bloody my nose, and it may take an hour or two, and I may need to call for help, but I know they don't belong, and I don't invite them to sit on the couch and put their feet up on the table. Your mind belongs to God. Just because a thought is in there doesn't mean it's in there. A dark thought by itself is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and neither is a doubt, friend. Doubting is not blaspheming the Spirit either. It all depends on what you do with your doubt. You can either seek to be relieved of your doubts by Jesus, which is, which is a Christian's experience, or you can, be, you can seek to be relieved of Jesus by your doubts. That's the person who should worry. Okay, secondly, I want you to see the second observation is that this, by definition, is an offense, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that can only be committed by a non-Christian. And not every non-Christian commits it. If every non-Christian committed this, there would never be Christians. There would never be any conversions, right? Because Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. If you're weary and heavy laden and you hear Jesus' invitation, he, and you respond to that and you come to him, he is never going to say to anyone, get out of here. So only a non-Christian can ultimately commit this sin. But friends, take heed. Not every non-Christian is outside the church. This has been very personal for me as I've processed this warning this week because I've thought, okay, Francis, what do you think your guardrails are? Okay, well, I'm a pastor. Wrong. Okay, how about I'm a pastor in the PCA? Not a liberal denominator? Wrong. Right? Those aren't my safeguard, friends. They can't be a safeguard. And neither is church membership a safeguard. The only safeguard is this. The only safeguard against blaspheming of the Spirit is worshiping in the Spirit, blessing the Spirit, and glorying in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian family. It does, by itself, the church membership, uh, ordination, uh, reformed convictions, whatever, they, those things are powerless in themselves. But you must worship in the Spirit. And then, thirdly, this is a sin against the entire Trinity. So the wrong thing to see here is that if you think, okay, well, that means that the Holy Spirit has priority within the Trinity. That is not Jesus' point here. Okay, so then you say, well, then, Mike, why does, he say in, uh, why does he say in verse 32 that whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven? Son of Man is Jesus. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What does that mean? That sounds like what Jesus is doing is he's carving out the sins that are committed against him, blasphemies that are committed against him, but he's uh, drawing a special uh, a special category for blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. Here's the way I think we need to understand this. Listen, Jesus Christ is the source of our forgiveness, right? The issue here is not God's willingness to forgive. The issue in this text is not God's willingness to forgive a sinner. Friends, you can't look at the cross and ever have any doubts about whether or not God is willing to forgive a sinner. Hallelujah! 
right? The issue here is not the willingness of God to forgive, but the willingness of a sinner to receive God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. How is forgiveness received by a sinner from Jesus Christ? Through the Spirit. So what Jesus is talking about here, right, is is what some have called a sin against the gospel itself. Now, I, I don't like that terminology. But a sin against the God of the gospel, I think, is good. Because, friends, the mission statement for the Holy Spirit is John 16, 14, where where Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, He shall glorify me, for He will take of what is mine and disclose it to you. That means that all the benefits and all the truth and all the power of Jesus' ministry are, are applied to an individual particular sinner's life only and exclusively through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so if someone insists that they will resist against all the the pleading of the Holy Spirit, the softening of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating offers of the Holy Spirit, the convictions of the Holy Spirit, if somebody resists all of that, then what they're doing is cutting themselves off from, from not just the Spirit, but from Jesus and the only one who can ultimately save his people from their sins. That's why this sin is unforgivable. And it is particularly perilous for those who are in the church, who are around the gospel all the time. So I plead with you, friends, feel finally a greater urgency and a greater opportunity that you and I have here, okay? Because... On our side of the cross, we have much greater proof of Jesus' identity, don't we? And we have much greater validations of the Spirit's power. Listen, if you're wondering about Jesus, just, just pick anybody in this congregation you don't know and ask them what Jesus has done in their lives, and you'll find out about power. We have much greater proof much more compelling proof. There was ambiguity here. There is no ambiguity anymore. And so there's a greater urgency, but that also means at the very same time, friends, there is a greater opportunity for us. The wrong lesson to draw from this this text and these observations is uh, is is to say, hey, I'm beyond recovery. You know, I've crossed the line. Friends, the Pharisees have crossed the line here. But don't be fatalistic. Be opportunistic. Say to the Spirit, even today, even during the last hymn, even right now, say to the Spirit, you fear that you have blasphemed. Say that you now understand that there are no such things as spiritual Switzerlands. Say to that Spirit that you want to be made into one who, doesn't, uh, who isn't against Jesus, but who is with him, that you want to gather with him. Say to that spirit that you fear you have blasphemed, that you want to be made by the power of God into a good tree who will bear the good fruit of repentance and faith in Christ. Say to that spirit who you fear you've blasphemed, that you now understand that the best of fruits was born by Jesus Christ on the worst of trees.
and tell him that you believe in that tree and in the one who is willing to go there in your place and open your hands, your beggar's hands, to receive the fruits of Jesus Christ from that tree. That's wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here. It's been a long morning. These are important, weighty things. And they need to be confirmed and applied by the ministry of your spirit to particular lives, including mine. How we pray for your mercy to flow in abundance for that end. We pray in Jesus' name.